0: Your four-year-old can discover the joy of learning. Waterford Upstart is a proven effective pre-K learning program that includes fun songs, games, and activities that prepare your child for success in school. We provide all the tools you need to help your child learn to read, including a coach, a computer, and internet access. And because it's already paid for, it's free for you. Listen, uncomplicate the way you do pre-K. Enroll today at waterfordupstart.org. Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace, offering everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all that interesting stuff in between. Extensive options, ease of selection, and flexibility at your fingertips help make sure your time is wonderfully spent. In fact, my daughter's wedding was just in Italy, and I took a bike ride with my son in law through Tuscany. Wow. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. Viator, one site, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember.
1: Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. I do apologise for the lateness of this podcast, it has been a couple of weeks since our last upload. Um, just wanted to say, you know, hope everyone's staying well, staying safe still, I know it's still a bit of a crazy time out there. And that's pretty much the reason why it's taken me a few weeks to get this podcast out. Obviously, uh, if you're a regular listener to me, then you know what my job is, you know that I'm sort of constantly out out and about, so it's uh, making it a bit more difficult to, uh, to find the time to actually make these podcasts. Obviously, I am trying my best and trying to get them out as, as regularly as possible, but obviously, work and family life does take precedence at the moment, so hopefully this one was a bit of a, a bit of a catch up for you guys. I know it's been the picture's been up on the Facebook group for about a week or so. Um pretty much everybody got it right. Uh, is the this week we will be covering Manfred von Richthofen, or more commonly known as the Red Baron and the Flying Circus. So this is a story or a a man, let's say, who has uh, been quite influential in, in sort of modern air warfare. And he, you know, he's world-renowned, world-famous, and I don't know of any other enemy who has been treated with the respect that the Red Baron was treated with. Obviously, you know, people die in war. Obviously, the Red Baron did actually die. He died on the 21st of April, 1918. But he sort of came a legend, and he was treated as such by the, the... the British forces, um, and that's surprising because obviously you know he, he was world famous during the war. He was famous for basically being the one man that any pilot didn't want to come up against. So you know to have that sort of a reputation and yet still be treated with the respect that this man was treated with just shows how influential and how important he is to history. How you know he's his name has lived on for over a hundred years now. So to understand the Red Baron we have to really look at his his early life and where he came from as a person growing up and where his career led him you know from a very young age he was born into that military type of power his father was a cavalry officer he was born in to becoming a military officer or working within the military he didn't really have much choice and you know he was born into I suppose in these these times you didn't really have much choice you know you followed in your father's footsteps and he didn't really have much choice in what he was he was sort of set out to do he was going to fight for germany or at this time he was he was actually born in prussia so which for nowadays is is actually a, a town called Rocklaw in poland so he wasn't actually, Germany was part of the German Empire, so again, this goes back to a time in, in history where Germany had a bigger land than what they have now, so again, and and this all ties in, you know, you can imagine this this guy being an absolute world hero for the German people, obviously wasn't wasn't actually germany he was from poland and then you can see the effects of the first world war when when poland was stripped from germany or parts of poland were stripped from germany and given back to to poland as its own as its own country you can see why things like that caused the second world war or, or helped towards the second world war and that that disgruntled behavior from the german people so he was born on the 2nd of may 1892 and he actually joined the Prussian army in 1911. He actually joined as a cavalryman. And he was only 19 years old. So he was quite a young man. Like I said his his early backstory. He was. If you ever get a chance to read his biography. He has um, snippets where he, he's exclaimed. How as a young child he was forced into the cadets. And how he was. Brought up around that military style and didn't really have much choice obviously his father was a cavalry officer he was forced into the cavalry at 19 years old that was where he he went and you know he he wasn't really wasn't really made for him and and the the problem he had around this time was cavalry was becoming less and less important during warfare so around the start of the first world war although cavalry did play a part obviously it wasn't so much you know one side of a field running at another side of a the field there was trench warfare and there was a lot more different ways of how to approach the enemy and cavalry was becoming less important as obviously a horse is a much bigger target on an open field and he sort of felt a little bit left out during the first world war. You know, he he joined the army. He wanted to make a name for himself. He wanted to become this famous officer or this famous man in, in the army. And when the first world war broke out, he was resigned basically to, to, to cavalry duty, which was null and void, basically didn't exist. Um, he wasn't a very good cavalry officer either. And, it sort of escalated from there where he he was feeling like he wasn't he wasn't being used in the way that he wanted to be used and this is all written in his diary if you ever get a chance to read it he does sort of stress that how you know how it it wasn't fulfilling the need that he wanted it wasn't making him the man that he wanted to be and he wanted to do something to give back to the war what made it worse during during the war was his actual regiment was disbanded they were you know taken away and he ended up basically doing desk duty he was a telephone operator during the first, like the start of the first world war and, and he didn't really see much combat you know he did see combat at the start of the war but sort of going into sort of a few months into the war once his his branch had been taken out he, he was finding himself at a loose end really you know he seeing all his his friends and family even family members sort of in the war fighting for their country and he sort of sat at a desk not really doing much and, and he didn't... He he didn't... He wasn't happy. You know, he, he wanted to to give back to what his country was doing. He wanted to provide something towards the military service and what he actually did was he requested a transfer to the German Flying Service. Now, this request was actually made in sort of April... Uh, of 1915 so he'd been been in the war for just over a year and you know he he wanted to join, he joined the, the flying service in May 1915 now when he started the flying service he was not a very good pilot, he was actually a shocking pilot to be perfectly honest, one of his first ever times he flew on his own he ended up crashing the plane into a field on landing so you know he had that that stigma of being a really terrible pilot, he, you know, he'd done a little bit of training and, and when he got sent up for the first time on his own, he was basically told, you know, remember what I've taught you and, and get on with it. And he, apparently he flew quite well, but when he, uh when he actually tried to land, he ended up crashing the plane. So it does, you know, gives you an early insight into how he was as a pilot and how, how he learned, you know, he, he obviously didn't start off as this amazing world-renowned pilot that we hear today so when he started he actually started as uh like a reconnaissance pilot so he is he was an observer his job was to fly over enemy lines and and have a look at the the trenches and, and report back basically so one of his first ever sort of things he saw was between june and august 1915 this is when he was he was doing his observing and there is a claim that he made that he shot down a french aircraft as with using his machine gun as the observer so obviously these were two man planes one man would pilot one man would have the machine gun the problem is at this time this plane was shot down behind enemy lines and therefore he can't be credited with that kill but officially unofficially sorry he, he claims that that to be his first kill even though you know I've, officially it doesn't count because there's no way of confirming it it's his word against no one's word really so it's important to think that you know you know this man is credited with 80 kills or 80 planes shot down 80 kills in the first world war the highest of any pilot in the first world war and they're the only kills that could be credited to him because they landed where germans could actually receive retrieve the the details from the plane now that does show something because you know the these dogfights were not all fought over german territories so it does make you wonder how many he actually he actually did kill and later in in the year in 1915 he ended up joining with a man called oswald bolker now bolker i could do an entire episode on himself bolker is the man who was basically known for writing the book on air tactics. He's known as the father of air fighting tactics. He is the man who wrote down that you only attack an enemy from behind. You attack with the sun behind you. You know, things that are still used today in dogfights in, in the skies. He was that man that wrote that book that showed everybody how to fight. So when he joined with Bolker, you're talking about possibly one of the greatest uh, pilots of the time and then he was joined by what who was going to be probably the greatest pilot of the time so it's quite impressive that obviously he joined he, he joined the right person at the right time let's put it that way later in in the year he well, sorry early in the following year february 1916 he actually met up with his brother who's lothar von Richthofen, and he Basically pulled him out of. He was doing boring duties during the war as well, and he pulled him out of that and brought him into the flying squadrons as well. And they they ended up joining a bomber squadron and doing missions, sort of bombing behind enemy lines and things like that. Uh, He was in Verdun on the twenty sixth of April, nineteen sixteen, which is obviously one of the most famous battles of of the First World War. And you know he did quite a. Credible work during then. Now he actually was known for being a bit of a risk taker, a bit of a crazy pilot. Um, and one of the times he actually flew through a thunderstorm, and pretty much, well, he nearly he nearly died. You know, they, these you got to remember during this time these planes were made out of wood, with basically like canvas material attached to the wings to keep you know to keep them steady. So they weren't. They weren't very well crafted, let's put it that way. And, you know, the, these were the points where you've seen the, these dogfights in films, and I, I see them all the time, and you see the sort of First World War dogfights where, you know, the plane's spiraling down towards the ground, and they yank back on the stick, and it flies back up. I mean, that's it's just fake. You know, the, the, fa- the simple fact is, if you did that in one of these engines with one of these aircrafts, the pressure on pulling back up at that speed, it would snap the wings off. So just gives you a, an idea of how flimsy these planes were. So when he flew through this bad weather he, he realised very quickly that he was very lucky to get out of it alive and later in the year, later in 1916 he met again with Oswald Bolker and then ended up joining joining his squadron which was formed, which was called Jasta 2 so in, in this country there are squadrons in Germany at this time they were called Yasters. so that's Yasta 2 so he's only you know, just over a year into his flying career and he's now part of possibly the most famous squadron in German aircraft, you know, in the German Air Force. Now, literally two months later, uh, October the 28th, 1916, Bolker was actually killed during a mission. Now, he wasn't actually killed by um, an enemy plane, he he crashed into another German aircraft and, and died that way. Once this happened, Richtofen then ended up taking control of of the squadron of Yasta Two, and this is where he basically became world famous. This is where he went from just being a standard World War One pilot to being the the fighter ace that he, he was known for. Now, this new Yasta Two squadron was where Richthofen got his first confirmed kill. So. He, i mean he even wrote that he he was animated at the thought of it, and you know he he was excited by the fact that he'd managed to sort of shoot the engine and see it shatter into pieces he was he was happy and you know it gave him a sense of pride that he'd, he'd actually managed to to do something himself if that makes sense. He was a strange man let's say, and for every every plane that he shot down, he actually paid a german Jeweler in Berlin to make him a small silver cup that was inscribed with the aircraft and the date that he'd shot it down. After this jeweler had made sixty different cups, he sort of realized that he'd run out of the materials to make it and and wouldn't make any more. So there were sixty, let's say, trophies almost that were made for every plane that that Richtofen had shot down. He also he sort of like um his own personal trophies so he would follow his kills once they'd got to the ground and he uh he would he would take trophies from either the planes or, or the the person so i mean he he wrote in his his diary but my opponent fell shot through the head 150 feet behind our line uh, his machine gun was dug out of the ground and it ornaments the entrance of my dwelling so you know he, he used to take things to just show and and show off really, and and have that little trophy of everybody that he shot down. Whether that was an ornament, whether it was like a, a a gun in this point or a a piece of cloth from the from the aircraft. Like I said, they were obviously they were covered in a canvas type cloth. So he would take something for each kill that he shot down. The following year, January nineteen seventeen. Is when he took over Yasta Eleven. He was handed the squadron Yasta Eleven, which would later become known as the Flying Circus, and this is where he really made a name for himself. When he got given this squadron, he he painted his plane the bright red that he is famous for. It was an Albatross biplane DV. So the image that most people think of when they think of the Red Baron is the, the triplane, the fucker D1, but that's not the plane that he actually got most of his kills on, most of his kills came from the D5, the Albatross, the two the winged biplane, and that's, he painted that bright red, and that's where he got the nickname the Red Baron, and that's where he became, basically where he became famous and feared by the, the British and, and sort of allied pilots and and any basically anybody who who saw him and you know they feared for their life if that plane was coming after you you pretty much knew you were going down and that was that was the fear that he managed to install into all the allied pilots so later in the year was obviously well, later in the year april of that year sorry 1917 was known by the allied forces as bloody april and that's where the YASTA-11 squadron actually managed to shoot down 89 British and Allied aircraft in that one month. Just that one squadron was equivalent to a third of the total planes shot down in that, that time frame. And out of those 89, 21 of them were Rick Hoffman's kills. So, just shows how impressive he was as a pilot even in his own squadron where he really didn't have to prove himself at this point but he, he still was you know the best because Richthofen's plane was so distinct it was so bright and it, it became a bit of a target for allied pilots obviously the majority of them when seeing the red plane would you know try and land or try and get away i mean there's even a as a point where british planes were told if you get tailed by the red baron then you need to land as soon as possible you know they were told not to engage with him because he was so dangerous he was such a good pilot although obviously that that was the case he was not immune you know that people did go for him people didn't listen they because his plane was so obvious to spot in the sky. It was red. It was the only red one in the sky. And, you know, the pilots in his squadron, they knew this. They knew how how obvious his plane was. And and this is where they all decided that they were going to colour their planes as well. And this is why they became known as the Flying Circus. Because every single plane in Yasta 11 was painted a different colour. So, obviously, we know Richthofen had had the red plane... His younger brother, Lotar von Richthofen, who we, we spoke about earlier, he, he painted his bright yellow. And he uh, he himself had a confirmed 40 kills during the First World War as well. So both of them were very, very good pilots. There was a white plane that was flown by a man named Hans Weiss, who had confirmed 16 kills during the First World War as well. They also had one that was painted with, it was uh, yellow, with red lines through And uh, that was piloted by a man named Werner Steinhauser Who had 10 kills during the First World War But he also had One of those kills was actually A balloon, believe it or not Which is uh, quite a strange one But like I said, they were they were used in warfare At this time, so he, he got 10 kills During the war as well The one I find very interesting was uh, A bright blue plane Which was piloted by a, name, uh, a man named Eberhard Monek now, he only had nine kills whilst at Yaster 11 so he did, he wasn't one of the, the best pilots there. But his plane was, like I said, it was painted blue, and on the side of the blue was a swastika. Now, I found that quite interesting, because the swastika, obviously, being the Nazi Party symbol, I found it quite strange that it was on a World War I plane before the Nazi Party had ever been even thought of. And I realised, obviously your mind automatically goes to evil with the nazi party and you look at the swastika and you see this this evil band but it was actually used as a a good luck symbol during the first world war and and wars before that i mean it's actually an ancient symbol that that dates back a very very long time and it's used for for peace and good luck so it's obviously the connotations from it have been changed drastically in the last century but i found that quite interesting so you know i didn't know if you guys found that interesting but there we go that's that's another one for you so we can see now how richthofen and the flying circus were basically seen as the pinnacle of the german forces you know they were seen as these they were celebrities you know to put it to put it in an easy way they they were celebrities of their day they were famous back at home they were world famous pilots and if you got a chance to be in yasta 11 and and you've got a chance to be in the flying circus with your own colored plane you know you were part of this elite group of soldiers you know you were you were seen as almost invincible really you know and that it shows how how they managed to get this name you know they were they weren't just good pilots. They had that charisma and that character to be to be the best and to, you know, with the bright planes. To be honest, to show off. You know, they were showing off. So at the height of his fame, you know, the summer of 1917, he actually got shot, Rick Hoffman. He was, he was shot in the head or a grazed shot in, in July 1917, and it fractured his skull. And he managed to he managed to land his plane, but obviously. They they believed that he wasn't going to survive. You know, they they everyone thought he was going to die. He had surgery on it, and you know that he survived. You know, strange, strangely enough, he survived a shot to the head. He had surgery and a fractured skull, but he was that eager to get back in a plane. You know, three weeks after, you know, being shot, he he was back in. He was back flying again. So it shows his you know he just didn't want to give up he just just wanted to carry on doing what what he loved you know i don't i don't believe he was this absolute menace you know he even states in in his diary that he he enjoyed seeing the plane fall out of the sky it wasn't so much the the man inside the plane it was more the the ability to to shoot down another machine i think it was more that than this bloodthirsty brutal man that, that you know he's he's sort of depicted as you know 80 confirmed kills he comes across as this man who just wants to kill everyone but I, you know i don't think that was the case i think he literally went for the machines and and that's you know that's backed up in his in his diary so he you know that you know that does sort of show who he was as a man and the fact that he wanted to get back to that as soon as possible again proves his his nature when he went back to flying this is when he went into the Fokker DR1, like I was talking about earlier, the triplane, the plane that, let's be honest, he is famous for. You know, interestingly, that wasn't the plane he flew until July, August 1917. So he didn't fly that plane for very long, considering how how famous that is and how, how well he's known for that plane. So the Red Baron now famous well or famous anyway, but the Red Baron, you know he got his final kill in April nineteen eighteen, and you know at this point that he was noted not just by you know his own squadron but by by family and and people who who knew him that the change in his attitude, the change in his demeanor towards the war he he'd given up and and to be honest. When you look at accounts of the First World War from soldiers and from pretty much everybody, they 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 all got to a point where the war was, you know, really, really taking its toll on people and, and that was for for the Red Baron, that was April nineteen eighteen, where he sort of just gave up on, on himself and, and wasn't really interested in, in fighting anymore. The the complete change in his demeanour Changed how how he approached the war, and obviously that that's why, or one of the reasons why that that would have been his last kill because he he'd lost the the will to to carry on fighting and and the will to, you know you've got to remember how how brutal this war was and and the effects that the First World War took on every single man that was involved in it you know it 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 started off when the war started you know. The British and the Germans, they were probably told very similar things, the war they were all told the war will be over by Christmas, it wasn't supposed to be a very long war, it was supposed to be a a bit of fun, a bit of pride for your country go out there you know, kill the enemy and, and come home for Christmas and then when they got there and you know, we've all seen the films and we've seen the the documentaries I'm sure regarding the First World War and trench warfare and how Bloody and how brutal and how dangerous it it was, and you know it it makes you you can understand why someone of the calibre of von Richthofen and you know and even though his squadron was you know Yasser Eleven were probably the the most famous squadron out there in the war, and you know he was well known, but you can understand why at this point he was starting to lose his his taste for war you know along with pretty much everybody else during the war you know he he was told he was told to to stop flying and this is this is direct from from his diary and he wrote i i think of the war as it really is not with a hurrah and a roar as the people at home imagine it is much more serious bitter and that you know, this this is towards the end of the war when when he wrote this, and th- and that just shows, you know, the the fact that he his demeanour had changed. You know, at the start of the war, he was saying it was a hurrah and it was a a call to arms and a jolly good war, and you know everybody was interested and and wanted to get involved. And towards the end, everyone was realizing how how serious and how how bitter it was, and how how horrible the First World War actually was for the people involved in it. So we can see he's losing his taste, we can see he's not as interested in the war, and it's possible that this, you know, this down in his, you know, his, his mind being down and, and the the stress that this was causing him could be one of the reasons why he actually was shot down, and there's no real confirmed kill of the Red Baron, there's no, no one... Has been confirmed to have taken credit. There are many theories. And the problem you have. Is he was found with a 303 round. In him. It was a 303 bullet that killed him. And the planes. That were flying at the time. That were shooting at the Red Baron. Flew shot with a 303. And the rifles that were on the ground. Also shot with 303 calibre bullets. So there was no real. There is no real. Confirm of who who actually killed him, but I will run through the theories of people who may have may have killed him. So, the flying circus engaged with a group of allied planes, and these planes were flying quite low, and this is important because. Richthofen's, one of his rules was you never fly too close to the ground over enemy territory because you're not just being shot by the planes or you're not being attacked by just the planes, if you're within machine gun range or sniper range on the ground, then again, you're opening yourself out to more targets and especially with his plane being bright red and being the only bright red one I think there would have been a fair few people that were, were taking a shot at him and that's it's important to realize that obviously the squadron that he engaged with were flying low and this is why there is no no real way of telling exactly who killed him the official credit for his his death goes to Canadian pilot Arthur Roy Brown now he was the man who was tailing the Red Baron at the time and he was the man who was shooting at the Red Baron at the time that's where the credit officially stands. However, the bullet into his stomach, through his lungs, and up into his heart. So, the bullet, the trajectory of the bullet was was up rather than down. And in this instance, when you were tailing a pilot, uh, tailing another aircraft, and, and attacking, you you would attack from above, not from below. So, it, it's it's almost unlikely that the shot was from that aircraft however it is not impossible that that shot was from the aircraft because there's no footage of it and it is possible that he you know the pilot did come underneath and shoot up towards the red baron but, but general dogfights at this time you came from behind higher altitude with the sun behind you and that's like i said again that's that's the rule book that's still used today so it, it's unlikely but not impossible that that was the final shot the other contestants for the kill of Manfred von Richthofen were Canadian and Australian troops on the ground, and they were in potentially in a better position. Now, the there are three candidates from the ground who could potentially have killed von Richthofen, and they were a man named Sergeant Popkins... A soldier named Private Robert Bowie, who used a Lewis machine gun at the time, or Private Snowy Evans, were all in position to have taken a shot at the Red Baron. Now, there were three... Well, sorry, not three. There were 2 postmortems done on the body. One says that the bullet entered from the right-hand side and exited the left-hand side of the body, and it could only have came from the ground. Which suggests any one of those could have any any one of those three could have shot down the Red Baron, but it could not have been uh the pilot Brown. However, the second post mortem shows that the exit wound was the other side and therefore the it could only have been shot from at his own height, which means that, you know, it would have been shot from the sky. So you're not really a hundred percent sure. What they've done is they've done tests on it. And they've done more examinations on it throughout history. And they found that the position of the Red Baron to where he was shot, that he basically, he couldn't have been shot from the air. It's that the the fatal shot, the shot that killed him, could not have come from the air. And the other two of the, the men on the ground were not in a position to take the final shot. The only man on the ground who was able to take two shots at the Red Baron was Sergeant Popkins and he now I believe has been credited with the kill of the Red Baron because there has been enough evidence and enough examination of the the area and the body and things like that to prove that the only person who could have got the shot the way that it went through the plane through his body could have been Sergeant Popkins so Again, it's open to debate, and this is a, the wonderful thing with history, is, you know, it is open to debate, and you, you're not ever, you can never be 100% sure on, on, on everything, and, and I agree with a lot of history that is written down in books, you know, but there are things in history that are hidden you know and that is because you know I said it in one of my first episodes and I'll say it again that history is written by the victors so there is always there is always conflict in in certain things in history and you can never ever be 100% sure that what you're reading is 100% accurate and i mean i will go i i i don't exactly know where the review came from but i have got a review on online that that has given me one star which I was a little bit disappointed at and it, it does state that I give too many opinions not facts and and I would like to address that and that is having been a historian having taught history at you know at high school level it is a lot of history is opinion you know you can back up you can make any opinion you want on history if you can back it up with the facts to provide that, and a the, the problem is obviously when you when you get reviews, you can't you can't reply to the review. So if you are still listening, you know I hope you are. I hope you've not you know I, I believe my first episode I think you know wasn't necessarily my best one, uh, and, and you know I was sort of taking the reins and learning something new. So I do believe it's possibly that they've they've only listened to one episode and, and left a review on that. Which you know everyone's entitled to their opinion, but I I do want to to stress to everyone, really, that listens, that, that history, history is what you make it, you know, if you can, if you can back it up, you can, you can say what you want about history, really, you know, and, and just from this episode, for example, you know, we're going, go back to that, the aircraft that had a swastika on the side of it, now, if you were to go to a high school class in the UK, or in America, or anywhere else in the world, and show them a picture of the swastika and say what do you think of that what's your initial response and i have done this in in gcse classes in this country and the response you get is it's evil it's a brutal image it's you know it's a scary image it's uh, anti-semitic you get you hear all of these terms thrown out but then you show them a picture of buddha in china that has got a swastika on the side of it and that Gives you a, a different opinion to to the the image that you're looking at, and that's that's where history you know is wonderful. You you can you can look at things and you can interpret it as long as you can back up what you're saying with a fact or with facts to prove what you're saying, then you are entitled to your own opinion in history. And to me, that's that's one of the wonderful things about history is is realistically, if you can back up what you're saying, you can never be wrong, and. That's what's always got me so intrigued in history, and and what also gets me intrigued in things like conspiracy theories and other wonderful things that I enjoy, you know. And that that's that all comes from there. So sorry, bit of a tangent there. I will we will go on now. We'll go on to the Red Baron's funeral, and this is important because during this time a lot of men died. You know, during the First World War, a lot of men were were killed, and I wouldn't say care was taken very much over the the, the dead by the allied forces or, or by the german forces it was there were too many of them to take the care of the funerals that, that they should have been doing and you know this is important because when the red baron was shot down you know he actually managed to land his plane that's how good of a pilot he was is the, the bullet had punctured his heart punctured his lung he, he was pretty much dead, but he still managed to land his plane. So, you know, he was a he was a blinding pilot. But the care that was taken, he was given a full military funeral by the Allied forces. You know, they carried his coffin, they buried him, they gave him a grave that was marked. The respect that the Allied forces had for this man was, was unbelievable. Now they actually took pictures of this funeral. Now you can still see these pictures online and what they did they were very clever and they they took these pictures of the funeral and then they flew planes over the german trenches and dropped these images down now they did that for two reasons one of the reasons they did was to prove that the red baron had been shot down and that their fighter ace was dead that was one of the reasons and the other reason was to stop a bit of propaganda that was going on now this propaganda happened on both sides during the war they were the british the americans the what well, to, to the late latter end of the war the americans the french and you know the allied forces they were seen as these from the german side they were seen as these barbaric brutal murderous bastards basically and and the the allied forces saw the germans exactly the same you know they saw them as these vicious horrible men and that's not the case and that's why they wanted to sort of show that we are humans we are real and we do treat people with with respect you know we're not as barbaric as you know what you've been told so it was to sort of destroy a little bit of the propaganda that was coming from germany towards this so that's the story behind the Red Baron, that's the story behind Baron Von Richthofen and, you know if you don't know about him, now you do and, you know, if you're, if you're interested, there are a few songs about him, there's a, a comic book, if you ever seen Snoopy Snoopy and the Red Baron it's a song, it's quite a funny song actually, but um, you know, there's also the comic strips of, of Snoopy and the Red Baron as well where, you know, he gets in his his doghouse and flies so that he's become a part of society he's become a, a really important figure in in history and again like i said the way he flew his plane and what he taught fighter pilots is still used today and that's you know his legacy will live on for that so that's the that's the story that's the episode and like i said just want to finish on a on a bit of a lighter note um you know obviously i mentioned that i've had a had a review if you do want to give me a review please give me a review you know please go online there are there are places where you can leave reviews mainly it's itunes um but i believe this review came through a different application but there you can leave a review on itunes just you know if you if it's a negative review try and drop me a message first cuz if there's anything i can improve on you've got to remember this is my 15th episode you know I'm, i am new to podcasting so you know, give me a bit of time. If there's anything negative, let me know because uh, you know we'll try and try and sort some things out and try and possibly change the way I do things if if it's if it is negative. You will also probably have noticed, guys, there is a new uh, logo for the podcast. Uh, that is that has been designed by a friend of mine, and you know I, was, I I wanted to do it a lot quicker than than what we have done, but that that new logo is still the same podcast it is still me um it's just got a little bit of a different different look to it and uh we are going to hopefully get some merchandise out for that very soon so uh I'm going to be looking at t-shirts hoodies car stickers things like that just uh just to get my name out there and get my podcast out there a little bit more bit more advertising so if anything like that interests you let me know uh, and we can try and sort something out and uh you know get yourselves on the facebook group say every week get yourselves on there we will try and get another episode out this week um like i said with work at the moment it's absolutely crazy uh you wouldn't believe everybody wants food um but yeah it's it's uh it's very very busy so i am doing my best to get stuff out as and when i can and again the same with patreon i'm going to try and get some patreon done as soon as possible but again it's just with things the way they are in the world right now there are more pressing issues and i shall try and endeavor to get them done as soon as possible but thank you guys like i said get yourselves on the facebook group drop me a message leave me a review and uh, if you do that I'll, I'll give you a shout out next week so thank you very much guys thanks for listening remember we all have history so make yours great bye-bye
0: Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.
2: In the heat of the moment, you're not just keeping it calm, you're keeping it cool, too. With an ice-cold cold brew. And not just any cold brew, but one that's slow-steeped and mixed with brown sugar and molasses flavor with a cold foam infused with brown sugar coolness and a cinnamon sugar sprinkle on top. That's keeping it calm, cool, and cold-brewed. With Dunkin's new brown sugar cream cold brew, America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Terms apply.